This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed the Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, and you are tuned into our OITE slash our board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine, and we are continuing on with pediatrics, so close to being done with pediatrics. If you have not already, go and check out the Nail the Companion book if you want to follow along with the notes and you want to actually follow along with everything that we're talking about on this podcast. And without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. But I think that's kind of it for the lower extremities. What are, let's move on to the upper extremity deformities. And this is, oh gosh, these are the things that just drive me nuts. <laughs> but yeah, the testable. These are the things that you just got to read about the week before the exam. And if you know them, great. If not, it's a point on the test. I wouldn't spend minutes and minutes focusing on the fact-based questions that are really quick to answer just because it's one of those, if you know it, you know it. If you don't, you don't. You just got to kind of move on. That's kind of a little test-taking strategy there. But going to these upper extremity deformities, a disruption in what signal leads to transverse deficiency of the upper extremity. Yeah, so this is going to be the AER, the apical ectodermal ridge, and this is going to be responsible for proximal to distal orientation during limb development. So the AER is going to lead to a transverse deficiency of the upper extremity. Now, what is the most common congenital anomaly of the elbow? That will be a congenital elbow dislocation where you get a dome-shaped radial head and the typical treatment for these is going to be observation if they're asymptomatic. Usually kids are asymptomatic from this. If they are an adult and they are symptomatic, you can consider a radial head resection. So it's not a very common deformity, but if you get tested on it, it's not an absolute surgical emergency in a young kid. Disruption of what gene product leads to radial longitudinal deficiency? Yeah, this is going to be ZPA or sonic hedgehog. These destruction of these genes can lead to radial longitudinal deficiency syndrome. Again, ZPA or uh, sonic hedgehog. And so in radial longitudinal deficiency syndrome, what you'll have is you'll have failure of the, of the failure to form the radial side of the forearm, wrist, and hand. So, I mean, you'll, you'll look on the x-ray, they may show you a clinical picture and you'll see kind of some deformities on that. Again, radial side of the forearm, the wrist and the hand, so maybe some thumb problems. And so the treatment options, one, you can do stretching. Another one is centralization, where you try to put the ball a little bit more central so you have a more functioning kind of wrist and an upper extremity. Other things can be X-fix, distraction. You can do an ulnar osteotomy and a thumb reconstruction, again, because they're going to have issues on like the radial side of the forearm, wrist, and hand, so that they may have some thumb problems as well. If, if they're older, so if this patient is a lot older, you don't necessarily do, you don't 
mess with the elbow contracture in an older patient because at this time they kind of already compensated for their radiolongitudinal deficiency syndrome. So again, these are just like, you know, you just see it and try to memorize those things that, you know, if you the most the best you can and hopefully these can get you some extra points if you can. But again, if you don't know it, you don't know it, you don't, don't spend a lot of time on it. You kind of just do it and, and move on. Now, what syndrome is going to be associated with radial longitudinal deficiency? I I found in my five years of being a resident and taking the ABOS and all of that that you can almost if if Vactoral is an answer choice for a question, I kind of just choose it because it is such a wide encompassing syndrome because it's deals with vertebral anomalies, cardiac, renal, all of this stuff. And so the Vectoral and the Holteram are associated with radial longitudinal deficiency. And like I said, those patients have like cardiac defects, they have vertebral defects, they have thrombocytopenia, they can get Fanconi's anemia. They're at a little bit higher risk for development of malignancies and all of that sort of stuff. So if you do see a patient with radial longitudinal deficiency, which is kind of what you described above, where they have that failure to form the radial side of the forearm, wrist, and hand, you're going to get a CBC and echo, a renal ultrasound, chromosomal karyotyping to screen for any other associated syndromes. And so a lot of their stuff is going to be managed by specialized pediatric geneticists and cardiologists and nephrologists and all that sort of stuff. So they are the patients who see physicians on a very routine, regular basis, but most of their stuff is not necessarily something that you need to, to treat, but just good to know that how to, how to work these patients up so that when you do see a patient and because most commonly they're going to come to you first. If you are a pediatric surgeon, the skeletal, the musculoskeletal system is a, a good indicator of something else that's going on because the parents are going to notice, hey, my kid doesn't run like the other kids or my kid doesn't use that hand or the hand is shaped different than the other kids. And and so those sort of things will show up first. And so you're going to be maybe the first physician that actually sees these patients. And so it's good to have an understanding of how to work it up and who to refer to. So that was just a little kind of quick side piece that they won't necessarily test you on, but good to know. But is hypoplastic thumb considered a part of radial deficiency? Yep. Again, because so they can have defects on the whole radial side of the forearm, wrist, and hand. And so the thumb is part of the hand. So you can have a hypoplastic thumb. And so say you have a patient with radial deficiency and you did a centralization for the more proximal aspect of it, but this way they still have this hypoplastic thumb. How do you treat that? If the, that's going it, to, it's going to mainly depend on the stability of the thumb carpal metacarpal joint. So if the CMC is stable with a hypoplastic thumb, then you're going to do just a reconstruction of the thumb. But if it's unstable, that's when unless you are the pediatric highly specialized hand surgeon that does index policization you're going to refer these patients out to get that procedure done basically where they take the index finger and they rotate it over to the thumb and now they have their long ring and small digits as part of their hand and then their index finger is their thumb and then Speaking about the thumb, and this is something you will get tested on because it's far more common than 
a hypoplastic thumb or radial longitudinal deficiency, but what is the treatment for pediatric trigger thumb? Yeah, so most of these are going to spontaneously resolve uh, around 30 to 65% of the time. But if you want to treat it, you can do it with an A1 pulley release. And I remember I was on PED seeing this little baby and the family was like, yeah, no, the thumb was just fine. They just fell. And and now they've been having this thing on their thumb where likely they kind of had that, probably had that before, but didn't really notice it. So like they'll come in, you know, talking or saying about something else, but when you examine them, it's actually a trigger thumb. And I remember telling my attending, he was like, I just told him the story and I thought maybe it could be a friend, you know, maybe it could be some of these other things. And like, just for me telling him the story, he's like, dude, that's not, that's a trigger thumb line, but it's a classic story for a trigger thumb. I was like, oh yeah, really? <laughs> and he went in there and it was a trigger thumb. So I was like, dang man, like, <laughs> like, all right, cool. So yeah, just know that's how those can kind of present in pediatric trigger thumbs. Most of them resolve, but if you do need to do it you can do the A1 pulley release and don't get tricked and, and put the oblique pulley because the thumb has that. It's still going to be the A1 pulley release. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? Then you need to know about ROCK. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Created for U.S. residency programs and free to residents, ROCK covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth, comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful board-certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to ROCK content is free to residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Now, what is going to be seen in in a springle deformity? So a springle's deformity is basically there's a failure of scapular descent And so you're going to have a hiked up smaller scapula with diminished abduction and other upper extremity anomalies. And it's associated with a condition called Klippel-Feil syndrome. And just like many other orthopedic things is to first observe and just see how functional the patient can be with a high scapula because they may be still very functional and perform all activities of daily living. They can do some of the extracurriculars that they want to do, but there is a procedure. I highly doubt you'll get tested on this because it's so rare and really not done except for on extremely rare occasions. It's called the Woodward procedure. And basically what that is, is a distal advancement of the scapula to put it in the more normal scapulothoracic articulation location. But that is, it's such a wild procedure because you you have to lengthen. And if you think about it, there's what, like 17 muscles that attach to the scapula and any movement you do of the scapula, you have to act on those muscles somehow. And so to bring the scapula down and to keep it there is such a hard thing to do. So the sformity patients usually are treated not operatively. You got kind of the, the long-winded question here. What are <laughs> some of the upper extremity deformity conditions due to failure of differentiation. So basically like what are some of the hand and upper extremity deformities secondary to? Yeah, there are like hundreds of like conditions and and things with pediatrics. So we're not going to go over every single one of them, but hopefully we'll just like briefly mention these and hopefully they're just a test answer just so you know and you've seen it before. 
But some of these upper extremity conditions that are going to be due to failure differentiation is going to be radial ulnar stenostosis. So again, they make sure you're x-ray and you just see there's some increased bone between the radius and the ulna. So this typically obviously will limit the range of motion, but typically they function okay. And their hand may be a little pronated, and, but you may do surgery if you have it bilaterally. So if you have bilaterally and you're unable to kind of supinate and do some of the other forearm movements, then you may do surgery to remove that synostosis. You can have syndactyly, which is a failure of apoptosis. So some of those fingers will maybe kind of fuse together. This is going to be associated with Polan syndrome, where they actually have an absent sternal pec major. And then also with a Apert syndrome, Carpenter syndrome, and the treatment for all these is kind of just to release the digits. So these are all syndromes where there's some kind of fused fingers. Carpenter syndrome, if you Google it, you'll see a lot of skull malformations and abnormalities, but they'll also have like some synostosis between like their second, third, or fourth digit. So again, this kind of syndactyly, you're going to release the digits. Phalangism is going to be failure of the differentiation between the interphalangeal joints. For this, you can observe it. Camptodactyly, this is when you have a digital flexion contracture. Clinodactyly is when you have digital angulation. And a delta phalanx is when you have the physi that actually is not perpendicular to the long axis. And you can Google all these. We're not going to spend a lot of time going over these. These are very low yield, maybe one question or maybe no questions at all on this. So if you want to take some more time out, go on and Google and, and take a look at some of these pictures and some of these syndromes. So because we went over more of the high yield stuff a little bit earlier, but continuing forth, what is the treatment of preaxial polydactyly? And you're kind of thinking of the thumb or so. Yeah. For the preaxials, they'll talk about preaxial and postaxial. And, and like you said, the preaxial side is more on the thumb side. That is mostly due to a kind of a bony sort of extra growth, whereas as you'll you'll talk about on the postaxial side, they are more kind of incomplete digits. The preaxial are more of the complete appearing digits, and so it's important to get X-rays of these patients to figure out which one of the duplicates is the primary thumb, because it'll be obvious. They'll show you which one is the primary and which one has the is the secondary or or the less dominant thumb. And so you're gonna surgically reconstruct these. You can do a radial collateral ligament reconstruction because you're gonna to have to take out part of the preaxial polydactyly and that may leave some of the ligamentous structures around the CMC joint lax or absent. And then a thumb realignment because there are a few that they have an offshoot of the same proximal portion, but because of that offshoot, you have to realign the thumb so that they don't grow with a thumb that's either too radial or too ulnar so that they have normal grip and hand strength. But post-axial polydactyly is a little bit different and a little bit less severe of a problem, but what is post-axial polydactyly? Yeah, so in comparison to preaxial polydactyly, where you're where it's more on the thumb side of things, so you may have an extra thumb. Postaxial polydactyly is going to be a duplication of the ulnar most digits. So like technically, I guess the pinky you can call it, but again, ulnar most digit. And so this is going to be an autosomal dominant type of condition. It's going to be more common in African Americans. And the treatment of this is going to be you can excise these or do suture ligation. So that's where you know you see though. It's kind of just excise it or ligate it, tie it off with a suture or uh, reconstruction is the uh, other option. And hopefully they won't go 
that far deeply into how how you choose one versus the other. But again, post-axial polydactyly, you can excise or do suture ligation or reconstruct. And so what are some of the risk factors for a brachial plexus birth palsy? So, you know, they always ask us some questions and herb duchens and all these things, not herb duchens, herb palsy. So what are some of the risk factors for a brachial plexus birth palsy? Yeah, so macrosomia or just like big baby, shoulder dystocia or a multiparous pregnancy are the kind of the biggest factors or risk factors for it. Like you said, there's two types of palsies that they will typically test on. The herbs palsy is the superior brachial plexus. And then there's CA to T1, which is the lower portion of the plexus and is typically has a poorer prognosis. Whereas herbs palsy, because it's the superior portion of the plexus, basically their shoulder gets caught on the pubic symphysis during birth. And as they're trying to be delivered, the neck and head stretch towards the contralateral shoulder the shoulders caught and they get this traction nerve palsy on the superior portion of the brachial plexus. They will have that classic kind of waiter's tip deformity where their arm is abduct or adducted against the body, their elbows extended, their wrist is flexed, and their fingers are pointing back behind them. The CA to T1 palsy, if it's associated with Horner syndrome, they will have a much poorer prognosis and they have a claw hand deformity but the c8 to t1 how they get that is the arm comes out first during birth and then there's a traction on the arm while the rest of the body is caught behind in the birth canal and caught behind the pubic symphysis and as they pull on the arm they get that inferior brachial plexus traction injury the worst prognosis is if it's determined to be a pre-ganglionic lesion versus a post-ganglionic lesion. And for those of you that are like, wait, what's pre and post? Look at the cross-sectional anatomy of the spine, and then you'll have the where the axons communicate with each other outside of the true spinal cord itself. There's ganglions, and if the traction injury happens between the spinal cord and the ganglion, it's a worse prognosis because that's considered a preganglionic, whereas a postganglionic is the ganglion and the peripheral nerves out to the rest of the body. So if it's after the ganglion, it's better prognosis. And then the one thing that you will most likely get tested on is they will show you a picture of a baby with a waiter's tip deformity or their hand is held in a waiter's tip. And then they'll ask, by what month would you expect biceps function to return if the patient is going to have a normal arm or something like that? And basically, biceps return by two months of age is a much better prognosis compared to biceps return by six months of age. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed Ortho Podcast. I hope that you all enjoyed it, and we will see you all next time. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is right for you. Free to residents, ROC is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's been authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. 
and residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today.